Hi, everyone, and welcome to Don't Run Into Glass, a podcast hosted by TheCitizen.in. I'm Geti. And I'm Anika. And Anika, what are we chatting about today? You know, Geti, uh, today we are talking about how I felt this morning. This morning I woke up, I went for a run. Um, I went to the local newsstand. I got the newspaper because I was looking for a particular article, but the entire newspaper was covered with this whole uh, conflict between the war between Russia and Ukraine. And we're talking about that today. We're talking about world war. Why? Yeah. 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 And I mean, for me, I also, yeah, it's so equally bizarre, Anika, because like you said, like you've had your morning. In fact, what a contrasting morning you and I have had. You've been out and about, you've completed a run. It's 9am, Anika has been out of bed, done <laughs> her morning, morning shopping, gotten the paper, read the paper. And I've been like battling like a one-year-old all morning. <laughs> I haven't brushed my teeth, but anyway, uh, it's weird how we're just sort of going about our lives, even though there's this huge global event that's unfolding. And I mean, I know, Anika, that this is because it's Russia and it's the US and the war is happening in Ukraine, which is, let's say, part of the global north. It's part of Europe, which is why there's so much attention to it. And at one level, we have war that is there in every part of the world. And I mean, South Asia and um, West Asia, Africa, we're all parts yeah. of the world that are very, very used to war. So, of course, yes, there is a lot of international attention on this war just because of the geographical location and the geopolitics involved. But at some mm-hmm. level, Anika, it's so weird that, you know, we have gotten so immune to war at one level that we're just out and about. We continue with our daily lives. And yet at the same level, war feels a lot more real than it did in the past, maybe because of social media, because of how close to home the stories are. And, you know, I've saw in the paper that a young girl was shot recently while trying to escape the war. Um, There have been stories of pregnant women that have been trying to flee the war, students that are trapped. And you see these stories unfolding on social media, videos that are there are being circulated by people who are at the center of this conflict. And it all feels so close to home. And yet you feel so distant and immune to it. You know, it's this weird contradiction that um, we have with conflict in today's day and age. I don't blame, I don't blame this feeling also, Gethi. I mean, irrespective of the fact that we are like living through a pandemic right now and there's been shocks after shocks, not only in the world, but also in our country, politically, socially, etc. But, you know, there is also um, how we go about our day so uh, normally is because I hate to say this, but I, it's objective. It's, you know, world wars seem to be fought in Europe, whereas violence seems to happen on other, uh, you know, geographical boundaries. Uh, there, there are huge uh, uh, social upheaval, civil unrest and political turmoils that are constantly happening in Africa, in India, in South Asia, in some parts of Southeast Asia, but they are deemed as violence. Whereas the situation between Ukraine and Russia has escalated to such huge levels. And obviously, it's powered by the by these robust economies that are fighting it. But it has escalated so fast that it has come to the brink of world wars. I'm sure you feel the same. I'm sure it must feel daunting to travel somewhere right now, you know, in the European continent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, I give this example a lot. I'm trying to plan a summer holiday with my family and my brother keeps saying that there's no point planning this for July or June because we're going to be in the midst of another world war. And I don't know if he's actually a realist or if he's a pessimist. I'm bordering on the line of not taking him seriously, but maybe I should. But Anika, more than anything else, I think for me, it's also just like, you know, I'm I'm somebody who reads the news. I'm a journalist. I follow geopolitics. I follow international developments. And yet there is so much 
information that is coming out of, let's say, this war or any war, I don't know which part of it is propaganda, which part of it is fact, what's fiction, what's actually even happening? Why is Russia even invading Ukraine? We know it's NATO, we know it's maybe Putin's ego, but it's very hard to really figure it out sitting in Delhi. And which yeah. is why I thought it was a good idea. You know, there was um, uh, Alexander who teaches at uh, Jindal Global University. He wrote an article for the citizen.in on uh, the misinformation that is going around as far as the war in Ukraine is concerned. And uh, mm. Alexander is going to be joining us today. Yeah, and uh, the the very, very informative part that he might help us out with is because he is from Ukraine and his family is actually in certain parts of Ukraine that are seeing this happen unfold in front of them. So, and also a note about the misinformation, it's like become a tool, right? And how world was these days? Why are we, why are we calling this podcast? World War Y. We're calling it World War Y because it has escalated to that point, yes. And now wars are being fought at different registers. So to understand the intricacies of this potential threat that the whole world will face, I think Alexander will really help us understand this um, uh, uh, properly, you know. Yeah, I just also want to remind you, Anika, that our last podcast was on adult breastfeeding, and we've moved from that into the Ukraine conflict. <laughs> so you know, know, yes, just... I was, I was, I was really sad when I was like talking to you. I was like, you know, get we, we always talk about this podcast in the way that what is happening in the world right now. What is what do we need to understand better, right? And yes, last last month it was adult breast breastfeeding, and we took a few months worth of break from really grim podcasts that we had done in the past about air pollution etc and we were happy to take that uh, kind of you know a fringe break but coming back to this it's so dire and I'm sure Alexander when he'll unravel this war for us it might just give us goosebumps somewhere so um, you know uh, brace yourself I guess guys this is some uh, serious stuff coming up. Yeah, and I think it's also just important to remember that even though we are going about our daily lives even though there is war and conflict around us um, and we are becoming immune to it in some way, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's in Iraq or uh, Afghanistan, in our own regions in India, you know, there's so much conflict. Um, at the same time, war, conflict, violence affects us all. So, I mean, I know that's a very cliched way to like uh, bring Alexander into this podcast, but it is, I mean, it is something that we can't really escape beyond a point. So let should we just jump into the conversation and get Alexander on board now, Anika? Let's do it. All right. Hello, Alexander. You um, welcome to our podcast. Uh, you currently teach at uh, Global Jindal University, and I've recently moved to India from Ukraine. Um, we're so sorry to hear everything that's happening over there. Can you tell us um, how your friends and family are when you got here? And also a little bit about from your expertise about the political ideology behind what's happening uh, in this war right now. Hi, Anika. Hi, Getty. First of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. I appreciate the opportunity to express my opinion. Well, first of all, let me briefly introduce myself. I come from Ukraine indeed. I'm a political scientist by training. I spent a couple of years working for an NGO in the Eastern Ukrainian region, which is also known as the Donbas region. So this was the government controlled area, mostly Russian speaking, very poor, very underdeveloped. 
So I participated in uh, developing the livelihoods of the local region. Uh, my family for the moment uh, is mostly back in Ukraine, my parents, my relatives. So uh, of course they are in a very uh, bad situation uh, because uh, right now there is a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. For the moment they are safe. They stay in the provincial regions. So I think this is an advantage definitely as uh, the major attacks do not yet take place there. So this is briefly about myself and my family. And by the way, uh, my wife and myself, we left Ukraine just a couple of days before the war started. And uh, to be honest, uh, I did not expect this to happen, even though there were signs of this, you know, and of course there were numerous reports from the media, from intelligence that we have Russian troops at the border. However, until the very last moment, I believe that uh, Vladimir Putin simply flexed his muscles, trying to raise his stakes at the negotiations with the West, with the NATO, uh, with uh, Western partners. Well, he did pull the trigger. So now we have to deal with this. Now, uh, coming back to your question, Annika, about political ideology, uh, I think on the one hand, it is hard to delineate a coherent ideology you know, which propels this war. But of course, there are different ideas uh, which account for this. Well, and first of all, I think uh, I should mention Vladimir Putin's nostalgia for the might of the Soviet Union, which he explicitly expressed in his numerous speeches. And by the way, uh, on the occasion of uh, proclaiming independence of the so-called uh, Lugansk and Donetsk Republic on the 21st of February, he made a one hour speech where he was highlighting that Ukrainian and Russian people are one people. He also highlighted the fact that according to him, there is no such state as Ukraine. Ukraine was always part of Russia, which is of course a very dubious claim. Uh, if you're a historian, if you're a social scientist, in fact, uh, Kiev Rus started long before Moscow was founded. Uh, so uh, as for the ideas, I think one of the ideas definitely which pushed him in the direction of invasion is this nostalgia for the lost might. I think we can even talk here about status, right? But uh, by status, I do not mean personal status like your you know, social status or income status, professional status, the status of your country as an ex great power, right? And in fact, I think we can even trace this back to the 2007 when Putin made it clear in his Munich speech that Russia should be given much more respect, all right? Uh, so this is one thing, the idea of a lost uh, status, great power nation, right? And the nostalgia for the lost might. The other idea is, uh, of course, Putin's belief, which I think is a myth, is that um, Ukraine has been occupied by Nazis, right? And this is one of the myths which I tried to debunk in my short piece with the citizen. And uh, basically the claim that Ukraine's government has been really filled with Nazi elements that Ukraine's government is very pro-Western, 
it's a puppet in the Western hands. Well, uh, and uh, there are two clear, there are two very short um, objections to that, right? Well, first of all, I do agree and I do acknowledge that we do have very radical elements, which by the way, started to appear a long time ago. In 2014, when Ukraine witnessed the so-called Euromaidan protests, right? These radical elements came up to the stage even before that they existed. The so-called uh, voluntary battalions, paramilitary, like the most infamous or famous one, the Azov Battalion, very radical, which resorts to violence, which indoctrinates children. They have camps, you know, where they educate uh, children, making them very ultra patriotic. But the thing is that these uh, battalions are only a minority, right? Of course, we have a regular army. We have many other voluntary battalions fighting for the country. And most importantly, there are no ultra-nationalist elements in the parliament. Although we do have individuals who express very ultra-nationalist views who are parts of the parliament, but there is no mm, radical force, radical party, which is present in the parliament. In fact, they enjoy only small minority among Ukrainian people, right? So this is the second element. Uh, the third element is, of course, Putin's fear of the West, right? Uh, again, we can analyze this from a very classic real politic perspective, right? The so-called security dilemma. So Putin feels threatened by the expansion of NATO. Again, the point which he highlighted in numerous speeches uh, toward the Western partners. And indeed, uh, we can look at Ukraine as the buffer zone between NATO and between Russia, right? However, uh, Putin has really put it in very stark binary terms, black or white, right? So he really expresses uh, the view that uh, NATO tries to encroach on the Russian border, right? So NATO is really a threat. So in other words, he sees this geopolitical rivalry as a zero sum game, right? So either they uh, enlarge and we lose, or we, uh, on the contrary, try to be preventive, uh, pro proactive, right? And we do something so that the West and NATO do not threaten our security. So this is the third element. Mm, I think there are many more, but yeah. uh, I would like perhaps to stop here for now. Uh, thanks, Alexander. I think that put a lot of uh, what's going on in perspective because, you know, it has been very difficult as somebody who's observing the war from um, a, very, well, a neutral country for all purposes. Uh, it's very difficult to, you know, sort of separate fact from fiction and sort of make sense of the narratives that are emerging. I was going to ask mm -hmm. you a question actually related to your article for The Citizen, but I'll come to that question in a bit and jump straight to um, perceptions of the war. And there was something in the in your article that you acknowledged as well, when you'd spoken about the beauty of the civilian resistance that has come up in Ukraine. You acknowledge that there are problems with that as well, such as the racism that is playing out um, in that, um, especially targeting um, people from African nations and South Asian nations. And there have been tons of reports about how people from these countries have had a very, very hard time at Ukraine's borders. Um, so there's an element of racism there. There's also an element of racism in how the media is covering this war, how the Western media is covering this war. 
And I remember like watching primetime uh, news, like one of the Western media channels. And there was an anchor there with the mic saying that, well, you know, it's surprising to see war in the civilized quote unquote part of the world. And as people in South Asia, you know, where we've come from a region where conflict is quite, uh, it, it's part of our everyday, uh, we kind of like are surprised by that statement a little bit because a lot of the conflict in the modern South Asian, um, West Asian world or African world is kind of brought here by the West. You know, it comes with, let's say, Western colonization or a Western agenda. So I just wanted to put you on the spot a little bit, actually, Alexander, and ask you about the undertones of racism that we're seeing play out because we're seeing conflict happen in a white Western global North part of the world and not in, well, our part of the world where we're used to seeing it. So any comments on just the narrative, how it's building up? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, let me just quickly come back to the point. I do agree it is hard to differentiate between fact and fiction, right? And in fact, there is a lot of information war going on right now. Uh, as for the uh, racism element, unfortunately, I do acknowledge that it existed. There have been numerous reports. And uh, frankly speaking, I'm very ashamed of this happening. I uh, wanted to believe that, you know, as a nation, we indoctrinated different views. We have more tolerance towards people, you know, who have different color, different nationality. And by the way, I totally agree that for those people, for Indian students, for African students, for Asian students, uh, perhaps it was even harder. No, because if you are Ukrainian, at least you have home, at least you are struggling within your own nation. Now, for those people, they were very far away. They were very insecure. They were very anxious. And, you know, they were waiting desperately uh, for things to, you know, to unfold in their favor. They were waiting for government's help. So uh, this is unacceptable. This is first. Uh, second, I do not want to um, justify this behavior on the grounds that Ukrainian people were in panic. Yeah, a lot of people panicked. A lot of people uh, wanted to cross the border as soon as possible. Still, this does not justify racist attitudes. Uh, unfortunately, I believe that as a nation, we still have quite a while you know, to go to become more tolerant, uh, to become more humane, if you will, right? And the catastrophe which is unfolding in the country does not justify this. Now about the portrayal of uh, the conflict in the media, I have been following different uh, media as well, you know, different points of view, of course. And it seems to me indeed that one of the uh, views, one of the strong views is that it's very bizarre to compare, to give so much um, attention to this conflict, considering how many conflicts have been happening in other parts of the world, including um, in the global, the so-called global South, right? So I do accept this point and uh, I share it as well. However, I would like to make one qualification. For me, it is very strange that the Western media portrays the conflict in Ukraine um, as a conflict in the civilized world. In fact, I would say, I would go uh, as far as to say that, you know, of course, geographically Ukraine is, belongs to Eastern Europe, but um, Mm, in terms of development, I think it is closer to the global south, right? 
uh, we need to remember that Ukraine is one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in Europe. Okay, this is one thing. Now, Ukraine is not a democracy, okay? Uh, Ukraine has made a step towards uh, a more democratic nation in the wake of the Euromaidan um, protests, but there's still a lot to be desired, right? So in terms of political governance, in terms of economy, in terms of mentality, you know, I wouldn't say that Ukraine is still civilized. However hard for me it is to say, right? I do uh, accept the point that the so-called liberal media, of course, you know, is trying to put more attention to this part of the world, uh, perhaps because they want to demonize Russia to some extent, right? Perhaps because uh, there are racist undertones as well, that Ukrainians are, you know, white people. Uh, but again, frankly speaking, I can hardly accept the claim that uh, being white is a privilege in Ukraine. You know, I travel a lot around, I have traveled a lot in the past few years around the world. And uh, well, while I was perceived as white, at, this time, at the same time, I was very, very quick to make it clear, you know, that I'm not a white rich America, you know, uh, things are very different in Ukraine. So, uh, uh, but to summarize, yes, there are a clash of narratives. Uh, perhaps there is, uh, you know, partial truth in both views. One view is that, of course, there have been many more conflicts in the past, so there should be paid uh, respect as well, right? They should be worthy of attention. On the other hand, indeed, I would go as far as to say that this conflict is unique, right? In a way that it happens on the borders of Europe, it happens on the border of NATO. Now, I do not want to sound Eurocentric, but I think the uniqueness of this conflict is that it was mostly driven by the myths of one particular man, right? Again, if you look, uh, again, I don't, wanna, I don't want to devalue other conflicts, but let me take the example of the American invasion into Iraq, for example. Well, they had strategic interests there, which is of course not justifying them uh, whatsoever, right? But they were very uh, strategic. They had very calculated approach, right? They had resources that they wanted you know, to uh, procure. They wanted to dismantle the government. Now, in this case, one particular man, uh, Russia's president, is completely submerged in his own myths, right? About the myths that Ukrainians occupied with Nazis, about the myths that NATO will strike first. So this is very unique for me as an analyst. This is so interesting. As a citizen, of course, it's a strategy. Again, to perhaps wrap up a bit, I do share this concern that there are racist undertones in how especially Western media portrays the conflict. But at the same time, I do believe this war is quite uh, unique like any other war for that matter. Yeah. I think Anika has spoken a lot. In fact, Anika is the one who uh, wanted to actually have this conversation with you because ever since this war started, she's been sending me messages saying that, and Anika and my brother both actually, that, you know, we're on the verge of World War Three. There's going to be a global war very soon and we're going to be, you know, caught in, <laughs> in World War Three um, very unexpectedly. 
so yeah. Anika, yeah I mean you know we've spoken about that my brother in fact was traveling to Europe and he's like I don't know if I can go there's going to be like another world war what's going to happen and uh, I think related to what you said there is this whole nobody really expected Putin to take this right. step and uh, yeah it was it was absolutely a big move like no like much like when you must have been coming to India you didn't expect it you just said it mm-hmm. uh and then this happened. And what scares me, and I'm, I'm glad Getty asked that question about the racism bit, uh, because besides the whole racism argument also, just when something happens in such a politically charged area where it's really like a, an entire section of the world competing against another section of the world. And that's why I asked you about the political ideology, because they are so opposed to each other that this is a perfect storm, you know? And in that, you know, and and we were scared. So I I do want to put this question across to you in that sense, as that does Ukraine really have a potential to escalate this to a status of World War III? And what would that look like if that would happen, especially after world, like we are in a a post-World War II era, we saw grave atrocities, right? Um, And now we have tools to diffuse them. So what how will this unfold can you give us a little bit more um insight into that mm-hmm. oh thank you for your question well actually again i would want to say that i do not believe that this will escalate into world war three but judging by the actions of uh, vladimir putin i'm afraid that i have to admit that from the sheer impossibility right that from the idea that this was not thinkable at all, this was not imagined. Now we're moving to the terrain when this is possible and even this is probable, right? So, uh, well, I see two potential scenarios. Well, uh, one, if NATO does establish a no, the so-called no-fly zone over Ukraine. In fact, uh, both the Ukrainian president and the Ukrainian people have called uh, for establishing the no-fly zone, which basically means once it has been established, then any aircraft that flies over the Ukrainian territory will be shot down, okay? And Vladimir Putin has been quite explicit on this, saying that once this happens and any nation which establishes this no-fly zone, right, be it France, Germany, or collectively NATO, right, will be considered as a partner uh, in this war, right? He was very explicit. So again, this is the reason why I don't think uh, Western nations will uh, impose this no-fly zone, which will of course um, cause more civilian uh, damage. But on the other hand, uh, Ukrainian cities have been bombed not only from the air, right? They have been bombed only by artillery, they have been bombed also by rockets, which are launched from the Russian territory. So maybe indeed it's a good idea not to venture into this direction and to establish a no-fly zone. But if it happens, certainly I think this will be an escalation, right? And this will involve other nations. And this will be already a direct route toward World War III, right? The second scenario, which again, I didn't want even to imagine, but now I believe it is in the territory of possibility is the nuclear war, right? Yes. Again, uh, yeah, a few days ago, Vladimir Putin was very explicit 
and he put his strategic forces on high alert. And the Russian strategic forces includes, among other things, uh, nuclear forces, right? So they are already, at least according to the West, uh, to the Russian uh, side, on high alert, right? Now, uh, a lot of analysts, a lot of you know international relations, political scientists, uh, people believe that nuclear weapons um, only serve as a way of deterrence, right? In other way. Nuclear weapons serve to threat somebody, right? They serve as a way not to do something, right? So if Russia has, indeed, if Russia has nuclear weapons, of course, the other side will be scared to do something, right? So in the one way, this is quite safe, so to speak. But again, judging by the actions of Vladimir Putin, I think some of his, some of his moves have been quite irrational. So I don't deny the possibility that at one point he will decide, you know, to pull another trigger, to pull, sure. yeah, to push the nuclear button. Of course, I still believe that, uh, well, both as an uh, expert, both as an, uh, you know, as an analyst, as a human being, that because he cannot push the button himself, usually the way it works, there is a chain of people who are involved, right? Who pass the command from one um, to another? Somebody in this chain of people will have, you know, the moral capacity to say no to this. Yeah, I do believe this will happen, right? Because um, people are still scared for their lives, right? Even if you are uh, in Russia, uh, nobody wants escalation, uh, and uh, so I do believe that somebody will stop this from happening. But again. Now, I do not deny the possibility that Putin will start the nuclear war. And uh, well, definitely this will be uh, a major road towards World War III. Yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's really interesting how all of this is playing out. I mean, at one level, it's very, uh, you know, your heart sort of goes out when you see war and destruction. And I think social media has made war a lot more real, even if you're not at the center of it, because the human tragedy that it uh, unfolds is something that you can't escape. Like if I'm open Instagram right now, I'm just seeing sort of photos and videos and testimonies of the kind of destruction that we're seeing in Ukraine. And so at one level, of course, you, you suddenly, uh, from a human compassionate point of view, see the war playing out. And then from a geopolitical, strategic, very cold, calculated, you know, mm. sort of uh, component of war is there looming above everything else. So, you know, the stark yeah. contrast between the two is quite apparent in today's day and world. But Alexander, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about the perceptions of the war. And I know I keep coming back into it, but that was for me one of the most fascinating parts of your article for the citizen on misunderstanding the Ukrainian war. One thing that I didn't know was that actually most Ukrainians speak Russian. I didn't know that. And so far yeah. we've been hearing this entire sort of rhetoric coming that uh, Russia was justifying the war saying that, you know, there was this effort to protect Russians in Ukraine. And uh, I think you told us earlier that you're a Russian speaker yourself. So there is that aspect of the perception of uh, why Russia has gone to war. But one thing that you didn't cover in your article and you have spoken a little bit about today was the threat of NATO's expansion into uh, what Russia considers its, well, its backyard for lack of a better word. And uh, I want to know how true both these perceptions are and what is the, uh, how big of a factor they have been 
in um, escalating the war to the level that it has um, played out at. Right. Uh, this is an excellent question. Well, first to come back to the Russian speaking uh, part, right? Indeed, a lot of people in Ukraine speak Russian, especially the people in Eastern Ukraine, especially uh, the people in Crimea, which was annexed by Russia, mostly Russian speaking, and people in the Eastern regions, uh, part of uh, which have become separatist uh, republics, right? Uh, my mother tongue is Russian as well. I went to Russian speaking school uh, in my hometown. Even if you're in the capital, right, you will meet a lot of people who speak Russian in Kiev. We have TV channels, uh, state TV channels, where still you can find Russian speaking programs, right? Although after 2014, mm, uh, you, the Ukrainian language has become the paramount language in state media, you know, in state documentation, in courts, uh, in banks, and so on and so forth. But on a mundane level, people do communicate in Russian as well, and there have never been any issues, except politicians trying to ignite this language uh, division. However, let me emphasize that on a mundane level, there are no conflicts among people. And this is all the more bizarre because when you look at the map of invasion, one of the cities uh, has been Kharkiv. Kharkiv is only a few dozen of kilometers away from the Russian border. It is mostly Russian speaking. Its politicians have been pro-Russian. I went to the university in Kharkiv and uh, it's all the more bizarre to see um, Russians aviation bombing the Russian speaking people, right? And again, the invasion started on the pretext of protect protecting Russian speaking people. So something doesn't fit here, right? And again, which shows that either this was simply a pretext or simply Putin was so, you know, driven by this myth that he completely mistook his illusion for reality, right? You know, I uh, want to ask yeah. here, and uh, while you say that it is so strange that they would attack such town, there have been several reports also about, um, I mean, I'm, and I'm talking about uh, long form articles at the New York Times, etc., as to mm -hmm. how disorganized this war has been from Putin's side. For a man who's been planning to invade this country with reports coming out, there have been reports that, you know, the artillery has been proceeding forward, but the fuel hasn't come on time. The Russian soldiers are quite disadvantaged in several times. And then you tell us that they um, attacked this town that actually has pro-Russia movements. Um, it seems like, does it appear like it was something that was planned in a short span of time or, um, or what? Uh, I think so. Well, uh, and I think it has been even confirmed uh, almost officially by Russia that they planned for a very quick victory, right? And this is why they don't have enough uh, supplies at this moment, right? Uh, allegedly, they also ask for food from China for their soldiers, right? So this is how strange uh, it has been. I do believe that they expected um, people in Kharkiv, for example, to meet Russian soldiers, you know, with uh, mm, good sentiment, you know, with flowers, you know, with uh, welcome speeches, but this did not happen. And I think this came as a surprise to Putin. Uh, I do believe that, well, he constructed his own reality, right? And in fact, he even surrounded himself with the people 
who confirmed this version of reality, either because they were afraid to contradict uh, Putin, either because they had certain political or career gains, right? But, you know, you don't need to be a political scientist uh, to understand that anti-Russian sentiment has grown exponentially in Ukraine after Russia annexed Crimea, right? You just look up any sociological poll, Ukrainian, uh, you know, uh, Western, any other, and you will see that since 2014, a lot many people in Ukraine have developed a negative attitude toward Russia. So I'm not sure how Putin really, you know, planned this. Now I would like to go back to the NATO part, right? Um, again, I do believe that for Putin, this is not a pretext, this is a reality, right? He does believe that NATO has threatened Russia historically. And again, this traces back to 2007 and his famous Munich speech, uh, the Munich Security Conference. But I don't think this uh, is the only condition, this is the only reason, right? Again, you can look uh, at this war from multiple levels, right? The first one is kind of geopolitical, which we're talking about right now, NATO. Of course, these are legitimate concerns, right? Uh, I can fully understand, you know, Putin was uh, a KGB person. He perceives the world in this Cold War uh, terms still, right? He believes he is surrounded by enemy. Well, he has all the right to believe so. But this whole geopolitical international reason is not enough, right? Because it only creates this kind of uh, fertile breeding ground, right? It creates the preconditions, right? Well, but uh, it also does not really point out to other aspects of why this war began. And the other aspects are domestic aspect and personal aspect, right? So from the domestic point, uh, I think this war served as a way to divert attention of the Russian people from the problems in the economy, in the politics, from the uh, growing authoritarian nature, right? From the silencing of independent media, journalists, right? So it's a very clever move. And by the way, when Russia next Crimea, Putin's rating soared, right? So, and again, this is not news. Even Carl Schmitt, many other um, political scientists, many analysts say that one way to unite your people is to create external threat, right? So this is a domestic aspect. And there is, of course, then there is this personal aspect. Uh, like I said, Putin has his own version of reality, right? He has these myths about uh, Nazis being in the Ukrainian government, about Russian people being oppressed in Ukraine. And also, I think most importantly, uh, I believe that now Putin has no way to go. So in a way, he planned for a quick victory, like you, Annika, hinted at, but now he's trapped, right? Because if he doesn't get some victory, then he will either go to the tribunal, right? Or the elites around him, you know, will revolt. Or people, ordinary Russian people, who will feel, of course, the brunt of the war, right? The economic destitution will also go out to protest. So Putin is trapped right now. And I think this is a very dangerous moment. Exactly. Can, yeah, go to further escalation. but. To come back to summarize my point, I do believe NATO expansion is a legitimate concern for Russia. However, by itself, it was not enough uh, to start this war.
Hmm. And thank you for that response, Alexander, because I think this is the first time and I've been following this war for a while. And I think this is why it helps to pin down somebody who understands the region, is from the region and understands geopolitics and international relations, because I wasn't being able to make sense of why this is happening. You know, I'd heard the NATO argument and I was like, but can that be enough? I'd heard the Russian speaking people argument. So it's very helpful, actually, for you to put it in these layers that there are these three different aspects, let's say, or four or multiple different aspects to why the war is happening. And neither one of them explains the situation entirely. Exactly. Um, so I think that has been incredibly useful. Uh, we're about to run out of time, but I know Anika had a question that she did want to ask. So maybe we can just sort of end with that question, Anika. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks so much, Gethi. I guess one of my burning questions uh, that I've been wanting to ask throughout this podcast is who are Russia's allies, number one. Number two is that we've heard of these sort of silent pro-Russian movements of putting the letter Z on uh, people so that people don't notice that on their T-shirt. In fact, people have gone so far as putting up a video online as to how to put it so that people don't notice it. But on the other hand, there are there is a huge call to action against Russian oligarchs where they're telling them to pay for Ukraine's uh, reparations. So just to sort of close this entire huge, huge uh, discussion topic, I wanted to understand what are these sort of civil movements that are going about? Uh, but before that, who are Russia's allies? Mm -hmm. Well, to understand who uh, Russian allies are, we can uh, take a look at the uh, vote at the United Nations Security Council and at the United Nations General Assembly, right? There were a few nations which did not support, the, which did not condemn these invasion, right? Some smaller nations like Venezuela, Eritrea, but there were others who abstained. And of course the two elephants in the room, if I may, are India and uh, China, right? Now both India and China have been very diplomatic about this, right? In fact, India first, uh, well, abstained on multiple occasions from voting, but if you trace the rhetoric of the uh, Indian representative of the United Nations, uh, you can see that, well, actually with time, it started to call for uh, cessation of violence, right? Which does not mean anti-Russian or pro-Ukrainian, well, it's just taken a more um, humanitarian stance. But still, of course, as we know, um, Russia has been a very important partner for India, both in terms of weapons uh, supplies, right, defense military, but also in terms of supply and uh, energy, investing into the Indian oil sector as well. So there are many um, important things here at stake. And in fact, there have been two major um, arguments, right, quite opposing ones as to how India should respond to the conflict. And one is that India so far has performed well. It should continue this balancing act between the US and the West on the one hand and Russia on the, on the other hand, right? And see how it unfolds. Also, of course, India had its citizens in Ukraine, right? So before evacuating the citizens, it would be very dangerous to take a anti-Russian stance. Now, the other argument which I tend to lean toward too is a more, uh, let's call it moral internationalist argument, right? Saying that, well, of course, we need to take into account our, our strategic interests with Russia, but at the same time, if we go back to the times of the independence, to the times of the Indian constitution, 
when it was conceived by people like Nehru, you know, who really took a very uh, pro-humanitarian um, stance, right? So war is war at all times. So no matter who started the war, India has this moral obligation to stand up and condemn it, right? So this is the second moral argument. And I think Indian position might change toward that view for two reasons. Well, one is as far as I know, all Indian students have been evacuated already, right? And secondly, for me, it's hard to imagine how India can continue its strategic relationship with the state, which will become increasingly isolated, right? Well, first of all, economically speaking, uh, the sanctions have begun to work, so it will be harder to have business with Russia, right? But more importantly, there is a reputation at stake, right? Well, how would India be regarded internationally if it would have alliance or you know, strategic partnership with North Korea, for example? Of course, North Korea is not Russia, for sure. But what I'm trying to say that there are reputation issues at stake. So I think all this will tilt the balance to make India a bit more assertive, right? And a bit anti-Russian. Talking about China uh, very quickly, well, of course, another elephant in the room, which has been very skillful and diplomatic, right? Uh, of course, India is also trying to maintain this alliance with Russia to make sure uh, there is balance of power in the region against China, right? So this is very important. And by the way, I think China is one of the one of the few nations which will benefit from this war, right? Because, well, on the one hand, it will weaken, uh, it has taken the attention away from the Indo-Pacific region, right? The West has really concentrated uh, on the European uh, continent. Uh, so it has kind of diverted attention, but also if Russia loses, you know, uh, China can become more assertive in the Far East, for example, of Russia. So I think it will play um, for China well. Now, uh, as for the aspect about the Z sign, uh, right? So a lot of people have noticed that Russian military and the Russian people as well have tried to engage this Z sign. Frankly speaking, uh, I have no idea what it stands for. I have tried to research yeah. it. Yeah, it's very strange, very bizarre. Yeah, I do understand that a symbol is important in such times, right? It's important to mobilize people, right? It serves as a way, it serves as, as a signifier, uh, as a symbol which unites people around this war agenda, right? So, but frankly speaking, I don't know what the letter itself stands for. There have been multiple speculations. Z may stand for Zapad, which is West in the Russian language. It could stand for Zelensky, which is uh, Ukraine's <laughs> president's name. So I don't know, but it does serve its purpose, right? It unites uh, people who support this invasion. So in a way, it does serve its symbolic purpose, right? And yeah. finally, yeah. final, Annika, you mentioned this aspect uh, of civilian resistance. And especially, uh, I have also read with uh, interest this news that a few Ukrainian people have occupied uh, a house. House of Russian oligarchs. Indeed, indeed, yes, in London. So one of the Russian oligarchs, Oleg Deripaska, uh, so his property, uh, uh, luxurious house has been occupied by activists. Luxurious and vacant house, yeah. Yeah, yeah, indeed. 
Well, their uh, <laughs> justification was that they want, you know, Russian oligarchs to pay for the war, right? Yeah. And they want to vacate it for the Russian refugees. But actually, well, of course, from the uh, legal perspective, it's wrong, it's illegal, right? You cannot simply take someone's property, right? But from a more moral perspective, I think uh, it talks about the injustices that Ukrainian people have experienced, right? And of course, we know that Russian oligarchs have supported Putin, although some of them, including Deripaska, by the way, have started slowly uh, supporting opposition leaders like Alexei Navalny in Russia. So it's very interesting. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, to summarize, indeed, there has been a lot of civilian resistance, not only abroad, like taking oligarchs' property, but of course within the country, right? Not only the army has stood up, but also uh, the Russian people in one way or another have joined a myriad of volunteering uh, networks, volunteering initiatives. And I think it really speaks about the strength of the civilian resistance. Yeah, I think um, uh, unfortunately we're out of time, but this was an incredibly uh, enlightening and informative conversation, Alexander. So we really do have to thank you for that. I think I have uh, gained more information on this war in these you know, 40 so minutes than I have in several weeks following it. And sometimes, you know, that's kind of like what the glut of the media narrative can do to you as well. It's very, very hard. It's becoming to sort of like figure out what exactly the nuances in, in a particular situation are just by the being inundated with the level of news and information and social media that we're inundated with. So thank you very much. I think we're just going to wrap up over here. And um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Alexander. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you.